Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The objective conditions for a socialist society have existed for a very long time. So why have we not yet achieved socialism? Many on the left will say that the fault lies with the workers, that they are too weak or do not have enough class consciousness. But if we look at the history of the last 100 years, we see that time and again the working class rises up to change society. The missing factor is a revolutionary party armed with the ideas to lead it to victory. In this episode, Julian Arsenault, editor of La Post Socialiste, discusses the class, the party, and the leadership, how to organize revolution. So the topic today is class party leadership, how to organize revolution. When we talk about revolution, we just need to look at the world around us. Really, every single day brings a new reason to fight for socialism. We see the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. This was actually shown by two recent headlines in the Business Insider, which really summed it up. It said, on, on the one hand, the rich earned $3.9 trillion during the pandemic. And this other headline said that the workers had lost $3.7 trillion during this pandemic. And this is the world we live in today. The younger generation in particular has known nothing but austerity, declining living conditions, and environmental destruction. And in this context, more and more people are saying it and thinking it, we must fight for socialism. But the question is, why has socialism not yet triumphed? So the title of the presentation is, yeah, how to organize a revolution. Well, we're obviously talking about a socialist revolution, a revolution that can overthrow the capitalist system, replace it with a, a society where workers control the economy, run it to satisfy human need instead of greed. And the rich know what's coming as well. Uh, there was a recent uh, article in The Telegraph that said, business elites fear a revolution is at hand. That was the title of the article. And yeah, the reality is, it's been decades since the capitalist system could have been overthrown. The objective conditions for a socialist society have existed for a very long time. On the economic level, we have, ent- uh, we have everything we need to satisfy the needs of humanity. We have the means to feed all of humanity. We have the knowledge and resources and technology to produce everything needed in an environmentally friendly way. We can satisfy the needs of all, but the pursuit of profit at all costs prevent us from doing so. And socialism is not just a good idea that could have been implemented at any time. Marx showed that under capitalism, there is a group, a class that can lead this struggle, which is the working class. The workers make society run. They can overcome the resistance of the the capitalist class by organizing themselves. So the resistance of the bankers, the CEOs, the bosses and can take control of the economy. And unlike in Marxist times, the workers are today the extreme majority of the population. The working class has never been as large and powerful as it is today. So really the question is, why don't we already live under socialism? I'm sure that many people who registered for this event, the winter school, uh, want the capitalist system to be overthrown. And the goal of Marxists is not just to merely study history study theory for the sake of it. Our goal is to win. Our goal is to help 
have a victorious socialist revolution. So this is what the discussion today is about. So in the title of the, the talk today, there are the words class, party, and leadership. And actually, uh, Leon Trotsky, who was the leader of the Russian Revolution together with Lenin, wrote a, a fantastic little essay called Class, Party, and Leadership, Why Was the Spanish Proletariat Defeated? Which is an excellent text that I recommend to really everybody. And the text talks about the Spanish Revolution, as the title says, the reasons for its defeat. Uh, I will talk later about the Spanish Revolution of 1931-39, which is clearly one of the most inspiring revolutions in the history of the 20th century. But suffice it to say that despite general strikes, despite workers' initiatives to take over the factories, despite a strong trade union organizations and a rich tradition of struggle, the Spanish working class was defeated. A fascist regime was established in 1939, which lasted until the 1970s. And Trotsky's text, Class Party Leadership, is a treasure trove of lessons on how to explain revolutionary defeats and how to prepare victories, how the working class can win. And this text opens with a polemic against a small, small, um, a small Marxist journal, or supposedly Marxist journal from the time, called Que Faire, What is to be Done, uh, which explained the defeat of the Spanish Revolution by the immaturity of the working class. So if the Spanish Revolution had failed, it was the fault of the masses themselves, according to them. And this is an idea that is very common in the workers' movement today. For many people on the left, the reason we don't have socialism yet is that it's because of the workers themselves. They say that the working class is too weak to change the world, or that the bourgeoisie is too strong, that their work, the working class doesn't want change. And I'm sure many people here have heard this before. Just a few examples. Uh, in Venezuela, there's been a revolutionary movement going on since the early 2000s. Uh, during this process, Hugo Chavez had openly declared himself in favor of socialism, of the overthrow of the bourgeois state. Millions of Venezuelans mobilized uh, to achieve this. And there were still people that said that the working class was too weak. And uh, there was one of them, a member of the Socialist Party created by Chavez, who said this, he said, one of the main obstacles lies in the organizational, political, and ideological weakness of the working class, unable to play its role as the main engine of social progress. This is despite the fact that the Venezuelan working class has resisted, resisted numerous uh, coup d'etats against, against their government since the 2000s. Another example, Yanis Varoufakis, who is the former finance minister in the left-wing Syriza government in Greece that was elected in 2015, calling himself a Marxist, he said that the crisis in Europe is pregnant not with a progressive alternative, but with radically regressive forces. I, I quoted him here. So he said this actually after the Greek working class had organized around 30 general strikes since 2008. And he said that the only option in Europe was to create a broad coalition, quote, including right-wingers, to save capitalism from itself. So here we have a Marxist saying that capitalism must be saved because otherwise we have regression. He has no confidence in the ability of workers to change society. Another example, more recently in Britain, we have seen hundreds of thousands of people joining the Labour Party since 2015 when Jeremy Corbyn, who calls himself a socialist, became leader of the party. And since late 2019, when the Conservatives won the election, uh, Corbyn has been uh, removed from the leadership and the right wing of the party has started to take over the Labour Party. And there's the, this 
influential and supposedly left-wing journalist, Paul Mason, uh, which argues to moderate the party's program. He says that for the, quote, traditional working class in Britain, and I'll quote him, he says, the defense of human rights, universal social policies, and above all, anti-militarism and anti-imperialism, end quote, he says that doesn't interest them. He says they're turned off by this part of the left-wing agenda. And he even says, I quote, does it help to give a message of hope to an electorate that has become terrified of change? So here he's talking about working people who supposedly do not want change. And what all these ideas have in common is that it's the workers themselves who don't want to change society. And this is something you hear everywhere. This idea comes from journalists, from liberals, from academics, but these ideas find their way into the labor movement itself. But what do Marxists respond to this? Well, the starting point for us is the fundamental role of the working class in changing society. And Marxists have nothing in common with the pessimism and cynicism of those who despise the working class, who have contempt for the working class. And it's not true that workers are too weak to change society. The reality is that many times in history, workers have risen up. And that's where the revolution is. It's when the masses, the workers, enter the stage of history to overthrow their exploiters, to take control of their lives. But almost every time this happens, it is the leaders of the labor movement, either of the trade unions, of the, of the workers' parties, or other organizations that put the brakes on the movement. They make compromises with the capitalist class rather than trying to take power. You have dozens of revolutions that have been stopped like this. But we, we have to be careful here with this because there is, you could say, a caricature of what I just explained. You'll hear that Marxists say that the workers are always ready for a revolution, that they're just waiting for socialist leaders to show the way. That if only we had socialists at the head of the unions, if only we had a revolutionary organization at the head of the workers' movement, then everything would be fine. Well, this is a caricature that has nothing to do with what we defend. A mass movement does not come about by merely snapping our fingers. And it's not true that workers are always ready to fight. But we must ask ourselves, how do revolutions happen? How can we organize a revolution? How can we win in a revolution? And what is the role of socialists to achieve this? So the working class, when it enters into struggle, does not automatically come to revolutionary conclusions. In fact, consciousness is not something that's revolutionary. It's actually quite the contrary. Consciousness is generally very conservative. People cling to old ideas. They just want to be able to li live in peace in conditions that are all right. And really, who can blame them? Workers don't take a job to go on strike. But there come times when the status quo is just no longer sustainable. Millions of people can't take it anymore. Austerity and privatization crush the workers. The cost of living is rising while wages stagnate. The rich get richer before our very eyes. And this anger builds up and eventually it explodes. And it is often an accident that starts a revolution, an accidental event. Like for example, this year is the 10th anniversary of the Arab revolutions which started in Tunisia when a young street vendor uh, immolated himself in a public space, which um, was the straw that broke the camel's back, literally. And that's what started the mass movement in the country, ending with the overthrow of the dictatorship in Tunisia. It then spread to Egypt and to almost every country of the Middle East. 
It's not revolutionaries who create revolutions. It is capitalism that creates the condition that force millions to revolt. And think about it. If you look at the last 10 years, is there a single decade that has not, uh, where there's not been a revolution? There's none. In every decade somewhere in the world, a revolution has taken place. We can compare revolutions to earthquake. Nobody can predict exactly when an earthquake occurs. And earthquakes don't happen often, thankfully, but they are inevitable. And it's the same with revolutions. Revolutions are exceptions, but they are inevitable. But the difference is that the revolution is made by human beings and we can prepare for it. We can play a role in making sure it ends in victory. But how do revolutions concretely happen? If workers could just automatically overthrow capitalism, um, it, there would be no need to, to, to be here and discuss this. Why would anyone register for the Marxist school? Uh, we could just be at home living our lives, waiting for the automatic overthrow of capitalism. There would be no need to debate ideas, programs, concrete measures in the labor movement. But it doesn't work like that. History is not an automatic process. And uh, among the anarchists in particular, you have a lot of emphasis on the spontaneity of movements. It is suggested that workers could spontaneously overthrow capitalism in a revolution. And there is no doubt that there is an element of spontaneity in all mass movements and all revolutions. And this is even a strength in the beginning. Spontaneously, you have millions of people who were not involved in politics prior to the movement and uh, from one day to the next are in the streets, go on strike, and even take the ruling class by surprise. But, but is spontaneity enough to overthrow capitalism? Well, history shows us that it is not. In fact, even in a spontaneous movement, in every movement, every struggle, in every revolution, a group or individuals end up leading, playing a leading role. Whether we like it or not, the masses of workers express themselves through organizations or through individuals who play the role of leaders. And anyone here who has ever been to a student or union general assembly will know that there is someone that gives the speech that convinces the colleagues to go on strike. Someone or an organization has written the leaflet that makes the case for a strike. Someone or an organization gives the idea to occupy a workplace. But on the other hand, in the labor movement, organizations or individuals exercise their authority to put the brakes on the struggle. People will argue against a strike. Some people will argue against workers occupying their workplace. And this battle of ideas is not decided in advance. So even in a movement that seems spontaneous, organizations will end up playing a leading role in one direction or another. And the different tendencies of the labor movement are expressed through different organizations or through parties. So this is why we need to organize, to organize. And when Marxists talk about building a revolutionary party, there's actually a lot of negative prejudice towards the word party. And that's for good reasons, because existing political parties do everything to repel the youth and workers. Even the so-called left-wing parties, once in power, do the dirty work of the capitalists, sometimes worse than the right-wing. And when Marxists talk about the need for a revolutionary party, well, we do not have a parliamentary machine in mind. A party for us is, above all, ideas. It's a program based on these ideas, methods to apply the program, 
and then a group, an organization that can put into practice these ideas in this program in the movement. This is what we're talking about. And this is necessary because the working class is not homogeneous. There's all kinds of people in the working class and everyone knows that. Uh, some workers believe capitalism is the best system. Others don't like capitalism, but don't believe it's possible to overthrow it. And others are just indifferent. But a minority comes to the conclusion that the struggle for socialism is necessary. And naturally the task of the socialist minority will be to organize to win the confidence of other layers of the working class in struggle, in the struggle itself, and to steer the workers' movement in that direction. And the best way to do this is in a group with a common program. This is the way we can have a voice. And this is why we need an organization, a revolutionary party, to bring these ideas into the workers' movement and convince workers of it. And we can ask the question, well, what happens in a revolution when there is no revolutionary organization or when the organizations that exist apply the brakes to the movement? What happens is the opportunity is missed and capitalism stays in place. And a tragic example of this is the Spanish Revolution, which Trotsky speaks about in Class, Party and Leadership. At the time of the Spanish Revolution, the working class and peasants were crushed by poverty. The revolution broke out in 1931, but really it was in 1936 that the movement reached its peak. Between February and July 1936, every major Spanish city saw at least one general strike. And on July 17, 1936, General Franco began a fascist coup d'etat with the full support of the Spanish capitalists and landowners in order to crush the workers' movement. But what happened is spontaneously, to, to put it that way, the workers repelled the fascists. They built up workers' militias, and they even began taking control of the economy. In Catalonia in particular, transports, industries were almost completely in the hands of workers' committees and factory committees. And alongside, uh, on the one hand, the central government in Madrid, the government in Catalonia, there was a second power, the power of the workers that was being born. born. But what happened then? All the workers' parties and their leaders, including the CNT, the union led by anarchists, held the movement back. They told the workers to disband their committees, not to take control of their workplaces, not to go too, fo too far. And the, the, the anarchist leaders of the time even boasted, uh, they bragged about the fact that they could have taken power. Uh, there was an article in the, in the newspaper of the anarchist CNT which said, and I quote, if we had wanted to take power, we could have accomplished it in May 1937 with certainty, but we are against dictatorship. And what happened is the opportunity was missed. The government of Catalonia and the central government of the whole of Spain managed to regain control. And these same anarchist leaders, having refused to take power on behalf of the working class, joined the bourgeois government of Catalonia as ministers under the pretext of uniting against the fascists. And the result was that workers were completely demoralized by this. And this tragic story ended with the victory of the fascists in the civil war of 1936-39. So the question is, why was the Spanish Revolution defeated? And Trotsky asked this question in his pamphlet I've talked about. So the workers spontaneously pushed back the fascists took control of industries, especially in Catalonia, the workers were moving in the right direction. 
but the leaders of the workers' organizations all put the brakes on the movement of the masses. And Trotsky says in his text Class Party Leadership, in such a situation, it's not easy for the working class to overcome the conservatism of its leaders. There needs to be an alternative that already exists. A revolutionary organization needs to already exist. And that's what was missing in the Spanish Revolution. And this is not an isolated example, and not just ancient history. As recently as 2019, a revolutionary wave swept the world. It was in Chile, Ecuador, Lebanon, Algeria, Sudan. They all experienced general strikes or revolutions. And the same question of revolutionary leadership came up. The case of Sudan is particularly striking for this topic, so I'll go into it a bit. In December 2018, there was a mass movement that broke out against the dictator of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir. There was extreme poverty, IMF imposed austerity, massive unemployment that drove the masses to the streets. There was uh, a mass sit-in was set up by the revolutionaries in the capital, Khartoum. And it was an article at the time in the Financial Times, which is not a Marxist journal, which explained, and I'll, and I'll quote here, it's a, it's a great quote. It said, one cannot know for sure what Russia felt like in 1917, as the Tsar was being toppled, or France in 1871 during the, the heady, idealistic days of the short-lived Paris Commune. But it must have felt something like Khartoum in April 2019. So we had a real revolution here. In April 2019, the ruling class was forced to remove the dictator, but they formed a military transitional committee to ensure that the army kept power. And the main organization that organized the demonstration was the demonstrations was the Sudanese Professional Association. And this organization called the demos, even called for a general strike in late May to demand that the army give away, uh, give back, give power to, to a, a civil government, which was the demand at the time. At the beginning of June, uh, the regime sent militias to repress the sit-in. And instead of scaring the Sudanese workers, another general strike took place, which paralyzed the country once again. There were even resistance committees that were created. And here you had a real opportunity for workers to take power, to take control of the economy. But instead, the Professional Sudanese Association called for an end to the strike. And then later on, they negotiated an agreement with the military council for a three-year transition before elections. And to this day, in 2021, the army's still in power and the misery continues. What was missing in Sudan? The workers made two general strikes. They held a sit-in despite repression. The workers did everything they could and the workers could have taken power. But the main organization that had authority with the masses made a compromise with the army rather than taking power. And in such a situation, you can't invent a new organization on the spot. And whether we like it or not, leadership is a fact of life. You can't escape the need to organize. And as the labor movement is led by a bad leadership with working class organizations that are holding the movement back, well, the task before us is to build and advance a revolutionary party that can play a positive role in the movement to help overcome and replace these bad leaderships. When discussing the role of a revolutionary party, it's impossible not to mention the Russian Revolution of 1917. 
And it is not for nothing that Marxists devote much time to the study of this revolution. Because for the first time in history, the workers and oppressed took power, overthrew capitalism, and took the first steps towards building a socialist society. And to build victories in the future, revolutionaries must look to the victories of the past. So I'll go a bit into this revolution. In February 1917, the workers overthrew the Tsar and the monarchy. And what came out of this, on the one hand, was a bourgeois provisional government. And on the other hand, the workers on the ground formed workers' councils, what uh, they were called Soviets, so basically assemblies of workers who began to take control of the economy and of running society generally. But within the Soviets, within these, these working-class assemblies, the reformist parties of that time, which were the Mensheviks and the Socialist revolutionary, Revolutionaries, had the majority at first. And both parties believed that it was too early for the working class to take power itself, that the Soviets should support the provisional government instead. As usual, the reformists thought it was not possible for workers to control society. Over the next few months, the provisional government did, didn't solve any of the workers' problems. And the Mensheviks and SRs, who supported the government, found themselves completely discredited. But this time around, there was an organization. The Bolshevik party, led by Lenin and Trotsky, had spent months patiently explaining to workers that it was necessary and possible to take power, ally with the peasants, uh, and yeah, for the working class to take power. And having gained the confidence of the workers, the Bolsheviks were able to channel the energy, the initiative of the masses, and organize the seizure of power by the Soviets in October 1917. So we see the Russian Revolution succeeded where plenty of other revolutions failed in the 20th and 21st century. Why did this happen? What is the difference between Russia and the others? There would be no reason to say that the Russian working class of 1917 was more mature than the Spanish working class, or that the Spanish workers were less uh, militant. The difference was the presence of the Bolshevik party. The Bolshevik party had not created the Russian Revolution, uh, obviously. In 1917, actually, Trotsky said this, he, and I quote, he said, they accuse us of creating the mood of the masses. That is wrong. We only try to formulate it. And that is the role of a Marxist organization, to formulate consciously what the workers come to understand unconsciously or semi-consciously. But again, the Bolshevik party did not appear spontaneously in 1917. We need to realize that it takes time to build a revolutionary party. You can't change the world overnight. And the Russian Marxists had begun their work in the 1880s, the 1890s, with small isolated groups who organized discussion circles, uh, reading groups basically, passing copies of Capital among themselves. Capital was one of the only books that the Tsarist censors would let through because uh, the police thought the workers were too stupid to understand capital. Well, that was a big mistake on their part. Uh, but the key here was to educate a layer of activists in Marxist ideas. Study the history of struggles, uh, of, of working class struggles, and pass on the lessons to new activists. Sometimes today we'll hear that, you know, the left should just unite. And we're asked, you know, why are there so many left-wing organizations or socialist organizations? And also, why do fight back in the IMT insist so much on Marxist theory? Well, the reason is, is that if we unite without really agreeing, 
it's a recipe for paralysis. Theoretical differences will be expressed on every important issue, and the organization will not be able to move forward. Imagine yourself you know, being in a kayak with a friend, and he's rowing backwards, and you're rowing forwards while you won't move, while the person alone in their kayak will move forward. So this is a loose analogy to understand the need for a common program for an organization, common ideas. Uh, and a big step in the building of the Marxist movement in Russia was in 1902 when Lenin wrote a book called What is to be Done, which I recommend to everybody. Uh, there was a debate at the time about the role of a revolutionary organization. And these so-called, uh, there was a current called the Economists that said that the party should only support the workers in their bread and butter struggles and that workers were not interested in political ideas, not interested in theory. And Lenin opposed this insult to the workers and said that actually this attitude would lead to simply fighting for small reforms within the limits of capitalism. And he said that the role of Marxists was to raise the consciousness of the workers, to participate in the struggles, but to connect the everyday struggles to the fight against capitalism. And another point of the book related to the, the, the party building is, is yeah, the need for a well-organized party to bring these ideas to the movement, composed of serious activists who wish to dedicate themselves to the struggle for socialism. And this is what they did. For 20 years, the Marxists in Russia patiently, patiently built an organization based on a common program and educated activists in advance to play a leading role in the movement. And they, in 1917, came up with the right tactics and politics to do so. But the question is, how did they come up with the right politics in 1917? And this is a point that maybe not everybody knows, but that in, in March and April 1917, the Bolshevik leaders had no intention of fighting for Soviet power. They also fell for the idea that it was too early to do so. And Lenin, who was the main Bolshevik leader, arrived in Russia in April 1917, and he completely rejected the policies of the other party leaders. For him, his perspective was that the working class, allied with the poor peasantry, could take power through the Soviets and thus begin the International Socialist Revolution. And in April 1917, Lenin was the single, the only leader of the Bolshevik party to defend this perspective. At the time, Trotsky had not yet arrived and joined the party only in July. But Lenin, by his immense personal authority, and especially because of the fact that his policy corresponded to the experience of the rank-and-file Bolsheviks in 1917, uh, who saw it was entirely possible for the workers to take power through the Soviets, well, Lenin succeeded in having his perspective adopted at the Bolshevik Party Conference held at the end of April and from that moment on, under the, the, the leadership of Lenin, the Bolshevik party set itself the goal of patiently explaining to the workers the necessity of taking power through the Soviets. Now the question is, what would have happened if Lenin had not been able to reach Russia? Well, in a revolution, time is a key factor, and workers cannot be mobilized permanently. And at a certain point, either the revolution wins, or doubt and demoralization begin to set in. And the less combative layers start to go home uh, demoralized. And if Lenin had not intervened in 1917, chances are the leadership of the Bolshevik party 
would have missed the chance to take power because they had the wrong perspective. What this shows is that it's not enough to just have a party and an organization. You need a party with the right ideas and a good leadership that knows where it's going. So we need a mass movement of the class, a party, and a leadership. Now, comparing Spain and Russia, one could say that it would have merely taken a Spanish Lenin and then everything would have been fine. You just parachute Lenin in Spain and the revolution would have been fine. Well, it's not as simple as that. And Trotsky tackles this question in his text, Class Party and Leadership. He explains that Lenin did not come from nowhere. Lenin was not born Lenin. In a sense, he was a creation of the Russian workers' movement. Lenin was the result of the work of building a revolutionary party, which he had greatly contributed to build. Without the party, Lenin could have done nothing. There would have been no one to defend his ideas. But conversely, Lenin's authority in this party came from the fact that he had spent nearly 20 years of patiently building it. So the, the revolutionary leadership of Lenin and the Bolsheviks was the result of patient work in building an organization. Thousands of other Bolsheviks, while building the party and educating themselves in Marxism, also became leaders of the workers' movement. There is an anecdote that really sums it up. In 1917, apparently, a single Bolshevik in a factory could win all his colleagues to the party program. Well, this authority came from all the previous work of building the party. And party building basically built these individuals who played a great role. So the point here is no one can change the world alone. And being in an organization with others is necessary to develop yourself as an activist. Building the party helps build individual activists that play a role in the movement. And really the Russian revolution is an inexhaustible source of inspiration. We did it once, we can do it again. And that's what Fightback wants to do. We want to play a leadership role in the movement and help carry out a socialist revolution. But if you look at the movement today, it's no secret that everywhere the Marxist movement has been thrown back for a whole historical period. With the post-war economic boom, capitalism was able to give concessions to the workers, especially in the Western countries. It reinforced the illusion that it was possible to have gains under capitalism. And the labor movement also experienced setbacks in the 80s and 90s, and it was during these decades that the leadership of the labor movement moved far to the right. And most of the leaders of the labor movement today accept capitalism. They collaborate with the bosses rather than mobilizing their members. Just one example, the current president of the CSN in Quebec, which is one of the main unions, he said on the, on the 50th anniversary of the bosses union, the Conseil du Patronat, and I'll quote him, he said, sometimes we don't have the same points of view, but we get along very well when it comes to promoting employment, fostering good working conditions, and ensuring Quebec's economic growth. Well, this is far from an isolated example, and this is the state of the leadership of the labor movement today. Many fightback activists will actually tell you that in the labor movement today, one of the main attacks against Marxists is this caricature according to which we say that if there was a revolutionary leadership, then the workers would always struggle and would always be ready for action. And according to these people, we criticize the union leaders as if it were possible for them to magically conjure up mass movements. 
And again, this is a complete caricature of the Marxist analysis of the relationship between the working class and its leaders. As I've already explained, workers are not constantly in struggle. And the working class is not homogeneous. And until the day of the revolution, there will be apathetic layers, skeptical layers, while others want to fight. Um, but then what should be the role of the leadership of the labor movement when the situation is not revolutionary? And that is actually most of the time. And the other question is, what role do socialists aspire to play in the class struggle, not just in revolutionary times, but also in quote-unquote normal times? Well, no, we don't believe that union leaders have the power to magically bring about movements. But we say that the role a good leadership can play in the class struggle is to prepare the workers, to set a plan of action, to educate the members uh, on this said plan in order to build a mass movement. And an excellent example of this, of what a good leadership can accomplish in the movement, actually comes from the student movement uh, with the 2012 uh, student strike in Quebec against the liberal government's tuition hikes. Uh, and th this experience is very interesting. And the leaders of uh, ASSE, ASSE was the most radical student union at the time, well, they had spent over a year educating the student population about the tuition hike, mobilizing students with the conscience, conscious plan to organize an all-out strike to make the government uh, backtrack. And, you know, some ASSE activists, many of whom uh, had anarchist tendencies, would certainly not like to be called leaders, but they were certainly playing a leadership role, and a good one at that. So with the conscious plan to organize an all-out strike, because these, these methods uh, corresponded to the needs of the movement, well, the ASSE leadership organized in 2012 the largest student strike in North American history. So they did play a leading role, and playing a leadership role is in no way contradictory to full rank-and-file participation. On the contrary, it is because the ASSE leaders uh, play the leadership role, educated thousands of activists about the need to fight the tuition fee hike, that it unleashed the fighting spirit and creativity of hundreds of thousands of students involved in the movement across Quebec. And uh, to be sure, the ASSE leaders did make some mistakes. For example, in the summer of 2012, when the Liberals announced the holding of elections, they, they refused to support the only party, the only main party supporting free education, which was Quebec Solidaire, and basically ignored the election, while more, most students ended the strike to fight to kick out the Liberals. Uh, and I don't really have time to go into the details of this. And this mistake doesn't take away from the main lesson, which is the need for leadership and the main accomplishment, which has been, which was to build this uh, historic student strike. And you can ask the question, how many participants in the 2012 struggle knew nothing about the tuition hikes just a few months before the strike? I was actually one of these per people. How many students were apathetic and uninterested before a campaign was launched to prepare for this movement. There was probably a lot, but this is the role of a good leadership, leading, educating, and creating the conditions for people to become interested and involved in the struggle. And the question of the role of leadership is a key question uh, in the current situation in the labor movement. In Quebec, for example, uh, we're in the middle of public sector workers' negotiations. It's actually been going on since March of 2020. We're facing the right-wing CAC government. 
the CAC wants to impose uh, salaries basically below inflation in the middle of a shortage of teachers and healthcare workers. And we in Fight Back and La Riposte Socialiste have constantly put forward the idea that the union leadership must mobilize its members and establish a concrete plan to go all the way in a strike against the CAC in order to, to uh, fight back against their, their attacks. And we were told this fall that, you know, you can't just call a strike and it magically, it will magically happen. It's difficult to mobilize the members. Uh, the mood is not there. And the logic of union leaders and activists who say this is that they can't do anything to change this. But then if union leaders don't do anything, well, then it's normal that workers don't trust that we can fight and win and are excited about being mobilized. So we're not saying that we can organize a strike movement by merely snapping our fingers, but we are saying that the role of union leaders is to act, is to set up a plan, educate members and give them confidence and thus create the conditions to prepare them to uh, take the class struggle uh, and, and fight it uh, to, to a finish. And uh, as we did in the student movement in 2012. So I said at the beginning of this talk that um, the working class does not suddenly come to revolutionary or radical conclusions. And I talked about the fact that there is a battle of ideas in the movement that is not decided in advance. Well, right now, the labor movement is led by people who believe in the capitalist system, who don't believe it can be overthrown. And union leaders have become very detached from the conditions of the workers. We have union leaders who prefer the status quo having some deals with the bosses uh, um, rather than mobilizing the workers. And this is the situation. But are we just going to leave it like that? No, there is no other option but to organize, to organize in the rank and file, to unite activists who are already convinced of socialist ideas, linking everyday struggles with the need to fight capitalism. And on this basis, socialists can gain authority to lead the movement. And the only way to achieve this is to be in, the same, in, in, in a common revolutionary organization. Because in reality, in fact, there are already union leaders in Quebec, individual members of union executives who call themselves socialists. Uh, but the problem is that they are isolated. They don't have an organization which allows them to really apply socialist politics, uh, policies against other leaders of the movement that don't want to fight. Um, so it, it is necessary today to unite those who have understood the necessity of socialism in a same organization. And this is the way we can have a real weight in the movement. And history has shown more than once what happens to socialist or radical individuals who do not build a revolutionary organization. Inevitably, these people will capitulate to the organizations that do exist. Just one example, Angela Davis, a highly respected former communist activist, however, long ago gave up the idea of building a revolutionary party. And she ended up supporting the Democratic Party and Joe Biden in the last election. And the same goes actually for people like Noam Chomsky, who's an anarchist, and David Harvey, allegedly Marxist academic. And politics is done through organizations. And when you don't build an alternative, well, you will inevitably uh, capitulate to the lesser evil of what exists. So all over the world, we see that anger is building up. 
you have workers suffering from unemployment, a decrease in their living and working conditions, while the rich are just laughing with their wealth increasing day by day. And the current leaders of the labor movement, who are not ready to lead the struggle, will increasingly collide with the will of the workers to fight. So consciousness is something that is conservative, as I said, but that can develop very quickly. Consciousness is conservative, but it has the potential to become revolutionary. You have a lot of skeptical people in the movement, and skeptics base themselves on the weak side of the working class, on its apathetic, demoralized layers, and they conclude that a revolution is not possible. We Marxists, on the contrary, base ourselves on the strong sides of the working class, its immense revolutionary potential. And everywhere you see this potential. You see a new generation of young people who want to fight against the capitalist system. And we see that an era of revolution is opening up. There's a very good Trotsky quote, uh, which is the following, which is very um, relevant for the topic today. Without a leading organization, the energy of the masses would vanish like steam not enclosed in a piston cylinder, in a piston box. However, the movement comes neither from the cylinder nor the piston, but from the steam. There is really no shortage of steam in the world today. The incredible movement in the US triggered by the murder of George Floyd has shown that even in the greatest imperialist power on earth, anger is rising and there is revolutionary potential. And the conditions are being created all over the world for revolutionary movements. And it is on this potential that the optimism of Marxists is based. Revolutions, as I said, are historical exceptions, but they inevitably arise from the class struggle itself, and they will come. But the socialist revolution will not win all by itself. We're going to have a movement of the class. Our job is to build the party with comrades playing a leadership role in this party and in the movement on campuses uh, in the workplaces, and this way we can contribute to a victorious revolution when the masses really get into action. And it's not easy to build a revolutionary organization, but it can be done. 20 years ago, Fight Back was actually three people, and now uh, to this Marxist Winter School we just organized, there's hundreds of us, the largest Marxist event in Canada. Imagine what we can accomplish on your own, there's nothing you can do to change the world. But united under a common banner, with a common program, common ideas, we can have an infinitely greater impact than any individual activist can have. And there is a role for everyone here in the struggle. Everybody here can help. We can and we will be the generation that will change the world. And we appeal to you to join Fight Back in this cause and to have a socialist revolution in our lifetime. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. 
we can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.